Japanese art is really affected by Zen historically.、Hmm. There's something called Raku Pari, R A K U, that really embodies that. And Raku Pari, you bake in the cracks, you bake in the overflows, you bake in the irregularities, and and those cups, those teacups, are really valued because each is idiosyncratic, each is individual. And yet, each is authentic because it's open to its cracks, it's open to its its irregularities. Hey everyone, it's Raghu, and I am back with Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network, and、uh, delighted to have with me Tim Burkett. And、uh, I was.、Uh, Tim has a, a new book out. Tim is in the Zen、um, community, basically for your whole life. Welcome, Tim. Thank you, Raghu. Thank you. And、uh, yes, I was saying I, I was really attracted by the title of the book when、uh, I got a hold of it. Enlightenment is an accident. Which is very, you know, provocative and hopeful at the same time. Maybe I could have that accident.、Uh, but before we even get further into that, I always like to hear what it was that got you to the place, even in your youth, where you realized, wait a minute, this stuff they're handing me regarding the societal norms and the goals of those around me and.、Uh, The mental chatter and the me too land is not potentially what reality is all about. Yeah. So, what were the things that、uh, just made? Would you like the, me to give you a two minute answer or an eight minute answer? <laughs> Whatever seems to flow, it'll be good. All right. Well, I was a I don't know sophomore or junior at Stanford University. I was majoring in psychology. I had no background in religion or spirituality,、uh, and this is many, many years ago, 1963, 64. And I took a course from Walter Mischel in my in abnormal psychology, <laughs> and、uh, I decided to write my paper, my term paper, on.、Uh, Lysergic acid, because in 1963, 64, there was just an initial real interest in that, in in really in academic circles, and uh, uh, so I did all my research for the paper. I'm sure you bumped into, of course, those two guys, right at that、Good、time,、guys. Leary and Alpert. Yeah, less later. Yeah, yeah. less later. So.、Uh, Uh, I uh, uh, researched the paper, and I I、uh, didn't. There was no acid available in in at Stanford that I knew of in 1963 or 64. Maybe I was hanging out with the wrong people. <laughs> with the I, wrong crowd. As I was researching the paper, I began reading about world mysticism、mm. and the fact that there there was a a deep peace where we feel felt. Feel connected with all life, 
beneath art-shattering mind. I couldn't believe it, but I, my first book was The Teachings of the Mystics and by Walter T. Stace. And he just pointed out in all these different traditions. And, and so I became kind of entranced by that, so entranced that I quit. I did finish the Abnormal Psych paper, but basically I, finished, I quit going to my classes at Stanford mostly and just, and just poured over this book again and again and again, reading about Taoism, Advaita Vedanta, mm. and uh, uh, Jesus' peace that passes understanding. Uh, and, and I became transfixed, and I didn't know how to meditate, but I meditated without knowing it. Cause, and um, then I had uh, a huge uh, enlightenment experience when I just had a huge one where Tim completely died. And, uh, uh, and the, no, no lysergic nothing. 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 Zero, you hadn't taken it? You had not had a psychedelic I'd never taken it. I'd never taken it. And, and the experience just, you know, set the course of my whole life. Um, and uh, then I started coming down, coming back to Tim and his worries about getting back to Stanford and everything he, he, he had had incompletes on, on the train coming back from Utah, where I'd been skiing with my friends. And uh, as he came in, uh, by the time I got back to Stanford, he had taken over again. <laughs> he did, that, did he? <laughs> that little narrator, that uh -huh. narrator who's uh, kind of bossy, <laughs> had taken over. And so I thought, well, I, this is what I want to do in my life. Mm -hmm. I, want, I want to ground myself in this wonderful peace. You know, on the train, I didn't know. I was not even raised a Christian or a Jew, but I... I my teach my intern minister liked Jesus's teaching, and I repeated for myself over and over on the train without knowing going out there before I had the experience, the peace that passes understanding. I just repeated it over and over, and then when oh, yeah. I got to see my friends in Utah, everything fell apart, and Tim just died completely. So anyway, this is a memory, and I'm coming back, and I'm and I want it, I want it. So I think, uh, hmm, well, where do I find this? And I'd read in my book that Zen was the simplest and, and least uh, ordained way, or at least decorative way, less ritual, less, uh, not little did I know that I was wrong. But anyway, that's what, that's <laughs> I, what I thought. Say. <laughs> yeah. uh, straightforward, you know. And so then I went up to San Francisco and I looked in the San Francisco phone book this is 1964, um, and I went to Chinatown. I thought, oh, Chinese? Oh, that will be good. Chinese, there must be Chinese. No one in Chinese that had been in Chinatown had ever heard of Zen. I didn't know that Zen was a translation of the word Chan, oh. but, I, but I don't know if it would have helped. They didn't know. But then somebody uh, told me, look in a phone book, and I looked in a phone book, and I found the Zen bar and the Zen center. And I thought, well, I'm already know how to drink, you know, way more than I need to. So I'll go to the Zen center. And this is 1964 before the counterculture had really. Yeah. Taken off. 
And I went over to Sokoji Temple in Japantown, knocked on the door, and this little man named Shinryu Suzuki came down and greeted me, and, and uh, that was the beginning. And that's basically, I'm 20 years old then, and I'm 80 years old now. You are. Oh, my God. You yeah. are fantastic, yeah. Tim. You look so great. Uh for everybody out there, by the way, uh, he's uh, Tim is uh, referring to a teacher that is one of the icons of the unraveling of uh, of our, shall we say, self-involved psychology and life that led us to a place of, wow, there can be something else. There is another reality. Suzuki Roshi is very famous, everybody. And uh, yeah, definitely we will put his books in the show notes so people can get directed. But so you met him. I'd just love to hear he about him. The door, the door because it was unknown then. I mean, you know, there was just a little group. So he answered the door himself. Really? And? And I, I, he invited me upstairs. I sat with him. Uh, I told him about my wonderful experience. And uh, I watched him. I watched him. I watched him. And he said, that is good, but it is not Zen. And then he took me into the meditation hall and told me to sit on a cushion and suggested I come sit with him whenever I could, if I wasn't at Stanford, every morning. And mm. and I was a little bit annoyed that he said that wasn't Sam. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but he he I think he intuited pretty pretty fast that I was caught on this experience that I'd had. Mm. And, uh, right. You know, when, even a beautiful enlightenment experience, if we're caught on it, we. You know, we, we're caught. It's just like being caught on anything. Yeah. yeah. And that was the problem, not with uh, Richard Alpert so much, but with Timothy Leary as I experienced them back then. Uh-huh. Did you meet them back then? Not personally, but I went to their talks. Oh, yeah. you did? Yeah. Uh, and Richard Alpert talked at Stanford. I heard him talk. I heard Richard Alpert talk at Stanford in 65, 66. I don't know when it was. And then I heard him again, and that was when he was still Richard Alpert. Mm. And he was very entertaining. Yeah, even back really then. Yeah. Good speaker. But he seemed he seemed not to have this sort of humility and naturalness that Suzuki did. This is in 1965 or 66. Then I heard him speak. He came here to Minneapolis, uh, I don't know, 82, 83. He mm. was Ram Dass by then. He was better, but it wasn't until he had his stroke, after his stroke, that I heard him, that I thought, oh, he, he is, his ego has really fallen away. It's no longer predominant. He's mm. living within the background and not just the foreground. Mm. That's a, amazing you say that actually be not amazing it's 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 certainly real but many of us you know and I've known him since uh you know late 60s and and so oh, on Oh you've known him since the late 60s too Yeah, yeah. Oh. and 
and then all through the decades, off and on, you know, sometimes I was more involved with him than others, depending on what I was doing, what he was doing. But we, you know, hit the power of his siddhi, they call it in India, you uh-huh. know, the, um, the advanced way he could uh, um, open up the doors to the to Eastern mysticism to the West in a way because he was a psychologist because he had done all of these so you know really committed to psychedelics and psychedelic insight because of all of that he really could point the way to the way but you're right Tim that it was after he had his stroke and particularly in the last 15 or so years of his life which he spent in Maui and then this organization came up around him to help support his work and his life for that matter because he couldn't travel anymore and you know it didn't couldn't earn a living that way but fortunately the internet blew up of course at that time and it was then that we well noticed he was more he was being in the way rather than pointing to the way mm-hmm. and so you know it's a that you, of course, many people notice that, including you. Yeah, so pretty amazing uh, journey. And um, I used to say to him, because you know he had pain all, and he was dealing with a lot of you know untoward stuff, health stuff, oh. being half par- paralyzed in a chair after the, after the, after the stroke. stroke. Yeah, twenty-three years, uh, twenty-two, three years in a chair was like a miracle. Nobody ever after a stroke for someone to live that long was, shall we say, at least highly unusual. And so he was dealing with a lot of stuff. And, you know, I used to speak to him, you know, not quite on a daily basis, but, uh, and, and see him in Maui a a lot. And, you know, he just was not copying into poor me and, oh my God, the pain, none of that, you know, and I used to say to him, you know, if I have 10% of the indefagability that you represent when i'm going through you know elderly state shall we say i would be very happy yeah no he was pretty amazing those those last years in in maui you had good fortune just like me you got i got you got to really hang out with him in crucial years for you yeah well the the real shall we say, quote unquote, good fortune, we can, we can, you know, discuss what that really means, mm-hmm. was meeting Neem Karoli Baba. Oh, yes, you went to India. Yeah, I went to India when he went back the second time. Uh-huh. I went back and I met him over there alongside of, you know, a number of other Westerners, some of them quite well known uh, as teachers in the West right now, from Krishna Das and people like uh-huh. him. And, uh-huh. uh, I, yeah, that, uh, just as, as, uh, Suzuki Roshi opened that door, literally, and you walked in, I had the same thing happen. Ramdas opened that door to a, uh, a being that, uh, I had no idea that this really existed. I believed Ramdas and everything he was saying. But I had no idea that, you know, you get into the presence uh, as you did with Suzuki Roshi and and then you understand that there is a place that us humans can get to, which is 
enlightenment is a tough word. And I, I wanted to sort of uh, parse that with you a little bit. Um, uh, just talk about the, the idea behind the book, really. The, the idea. The accident prone. The idea behind the book, and you you already know this, Raghu, is that we, we can't get enlightened. We have to die to everything. Even the idea that we have to die, and I don't mean literal death physically, but I do mean psycho-spiritual death. And, and how can we, and that's an accident, because we actually, that, that's the only way it happens. But we can make ourselves accident prone. And, and that's what I help my students do. That's what I did for years. And uh, uh, we can do that through, I have five different chapters on ways to make ourselves accident prone. Um, and once we are accident prone, then it's possible for us to fall awake. Uh, we completely let go of everything, including trying to let go and fall into a wonderful wakefulness that's always here, that's always supporting us, because it, it's what we are. Mm. Okay, so here's the parsing of enlightenment. I, for people, um, the audience that we have, community that we have here on Be Here Now Network and in this particular podcast, Mind Rolling, I like to get as practical as I can. And um, I guess, for instance, people talk about getting enlightened. Uh -huh. what, what can I do to get enlightened, right? And I, and I give the, the best example I give is Ram Das himself. When he was in India with Deem Karoli Baba, who we called Maharaji, uh, he, said, he asked that very question. And he wanted a practice uh -huh. that would get him enlightened. Mm -hmm. So he asked. And he, you know, his he had friends that were into Buddhism that were getting quote unquote secret teachings through mantra practice or whatever whatever yeah. could be a ritualistic practice. Yeah. So that's what he was looking for. And uh -huh. he Maharaji said to him feed people ah. and got him pissed off. Uh -huh. You know, I've told the story many times because it's so clear as to how we in the West expect mm -hmm. this, uh, the idea of enlightenment is uh -huh. the way that we chase, you know, our next career or a university degree or something like that. And then, so Ramdas, well, this is BS. I mean, you know, my friends, my Buddhist friends are getting the real thing. What is this? And he asked again in a different way, how do I raise Kundalini? And Maharaji said, love everyone. Oh, oh. So at that point, Ramdas let go and, and understood that, uh, you know, the, the level at which he was asking this question was coming from a, an egoic, shall we say, place. Yeah. And uh, it was useless. And uh, the, the reality is, I like to say to people, enlightenment, that's way beyond our pay grade. How about, and you did include this, how about that we become much more aware? How about that we become kinder, more compassionate, more loving? 
that to me is enlightenment in, in terms of our day-to-day -day lives and the way that we interact with people. And uh, a, uh, a term like enlightenment uh, is, is, can be really unfortunate if we are pursuing that in the way that we pursue everything in our lives from... So true. That's so true, Raghu. And, you know, we have, uh, uh, so uh, uh, I gave a talk at Zen Center recently in which I talked about uh, the different kinds of yogas from the, uh, uh, the Vedas and the Upanishadic tradition mm. and how they're all present in Zen. Karma yoga, service, is what the bodhisattva is all about. I mean, mm. we really mm. emphasize the bodhisattva in Mahayana Zen. And that's, from my point of view, karma yoga. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did, how did Roshi, huh? how did Roshi um, explicate that in particular to his students? I've never really heard. No, I don't much. think he explicated it very well. <laughs> I mean, you know, not very well. I, I don't want to put him down. I don't think he explicated it much, but he would always say, well, uh, uh, with me, well, what does your wife think? Have you, have you, have you listened to her? What does your father think? Have you listened to her, him? And I said, and, and then, you know, he would do that about many, many different people. So when I moved up to San Francisco and I dropped out of Stanford, uh, he helped me find a place to stay right across the street from his, where his temple was. And then wow. he said, and what does your father think? I said, oh, my father is very materialistic. Mm. He said, material is good. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and uh, I can give many examples of how uh, once we went to an art exhibit at uh, the San Francisco Art Institute, and we wanted to go there um, uh, because they had some exhibit that I knew he'd be interested in. And, and a few of us went in a car with him, and he didn't watch the show. Uh, there was a good speaker talking about the whole thing. He, he just got up and left. And then afterwards I said, uh, Sensei, you missed the show. What were you doing? He said, I was buying a card for Ruth. Now, Ruth was my roommate. She was very depressed. And uh, so more important for him was to buy a card for Ruth, which mm -hmm. he, then, he then brought back to her. She had wanted to go, but she was too, oh, just too kind of feeling too hopeless. So he did those. He never talked much about it. He just did these. He things. did this. He acted. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Um, one of the things, you know, I mean, quite a number of things struck me in the book, Tim. It's got a lot of, uh, you know, really uh, great uh, material to contemplate on. And certainly, uh, I know this is something that I uh, used to talk to Ramdas about a lot. And actually, uh, we have this movie, Becoming Nobody, that we uh, put together a few years ago. Oh, around. like a Zen book. Eh? Sounds like a Zen book, Becoming Nobody. Becoming Nobody, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it's really great. It really is a compendium of, you know, direct his, uh, talking about his direct experiences oh, I, I uh, don't over, over his, 
Yeah, you, everybody, you can get it anywhere you can. You can rent it on Amazon and Apple it, and all that video? stuff. It's a video? It's a film. It's a documentary oh. film. Nice. And it's how, you know, he his thing about becoming nobody, and it takes it through different stages. And, of course, he does absolutely say you have to be a somebody before you can. You can't just be a become a nobody. Very, very until, important. Yeah, yeah. You may remember this from my book. I talk a lot, quite a bit in my book about spiritual bypass. Yeah, I want to talk about that too. Let's I'm also move. a psychologist, and it just hurts me to see how often people spiritually bypass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm quite with you, and I do want to talk. But I, you know what I want to talk about first, which is he talks about in the film too, is masks. That's oh, yeah. why when when I read this, I went, oh yeah, that's yeah. We we've done a lot of talking about that. Um, and just from your book, um, you also met someone named Tulun, right? Another yeah, Zen person. Yeah, he was Tulun. a teacher who became later very famous too. He founded City of 10,000 Buddhas in uh, hmm. Northern California. Oh, really? Wow. Uh, I've never heard of him. It's a huge, I don't know, he must, a bunch of Chinese Americans must have given a lot of money, but yeah. in those days, nobody knew him. He was just in a little apartment about two week, two blocks from Suzuki Roshi. What's what town was that in? Uh, city of ta- ten thousand Buddhas. Maybe you. No, moved. no. The where where are these these two incredible all people? in San Francisco. Oh, it was in in San all Francisco, in Japan town. In oh, San really? Francisco. Poor Tolan couldn't talk to anyone. He went to Chinatown. He only spoke Mandarin, and they spoke Cantonese. <laughs> you couldn't talk to them either. Yeah. No. Oh, wow. So he had to translate it. So anyhow, you say how these two beings opened your eyes to a new world, which is how I started this thing. How did you get opened up to this new world? And and I love this, uh, Tim. Theirs was a world without masks, a world of openness, spontaneity, unpredictability, and ease. Ah, uh, that you know, I I it's like a cool breeze, right? And I well know exactly what you're saying, being around Neem Karoli Baba when I was, uh, and probably around the I was in my early 20s at mm-hmm. the time, mm-hmm. and to to have that breeze waft <laughs> through you, and of course that breeze is always blowing. We have to have some trust in that. It's always blowing, so that we can. Um, do whatever we need to to prepare for this wonderful accident. (laughs) And but what you do say, I also recognize that the key to their natural ease was freedom from yearning. Or I would say freedom from grasping. Yeah, which is a paradox. Yeah, yeah, you were stuck in a catch-22. Talk about that catch-22. Well, that's common experience. Yeah, well, as you well know, that catch-22 is the more I want it, the more solidified it becomes. My my neural pathways harden because I want it. And it's only when my neural pathways open that it happens. And so, and yet, the aspiration is so important. If without the aspiration, I, I wouldn't have had this wonderful, wonderful life. But as soon as the aspiration hardens into expectation, then we're in trouble. Then we need a, a teacher to kind of give us a little poke or something, uh, or somebody. 
because it's so or easily a, a whack on the back with no. one of those big sticks in the zendo. Oh, no. and I'm sure that uh, that happened with uh, Ramdas's teacher, and, and mm-hmm. you know, because I see that happening all over the place. Um, and I remember how, uh, and and also you have to ready yourself so that when you do completely die to yourself you're able to come back and have a narrator and not be freaked out that's another part that people took psychedelics back then but they just they just wasted them they wasted them well i don't think it's a waste even if people were wasting there was still something you know when you have that ineffable thing happen and that that complete interconnectivity that's right Yes, and I had that too, but I had friends who ended up in the psych wards. Yeah. And they weren't, yeah, and you and me both, and they were not, for the most part, they were not doing what both Leary and Alpert suggested, which is set and setting and and treating it as a sacred journey. That's right. You know, going to the disco or whatever it was back then and taking a hit. Yeah, you're going to end up potentially in trouble for sure. No. So, um, but I, to to get you, you know, to the true face where the mask is no longer there takes a lot of courage because it's about, and as you say, letting go of judgment and uh, being less reactive and less anxious, pretentious, more calm and open and authentic. Um, and then suddenly that mask, which is, basically to me equates to the completely self-interested uh, person that we people that we are on a day-to-day basis if we you know as we wake up in the morning and uh, my friend Krishnadas called it it's the movie of me and uh, ah, that's you know, a good one you wake up in the morning you're the protagonist and you're the director you're the writer you're uh, in fact you even write all the reviews of your day right and uh so yeah that is our our mask and we're comfortable with it and uh letting go of uh, as you you suggested here particularly around uh you know judgment and and uh, pretentiousness and and not being authentic because we're defending and protecting um and trying to be spiritual, the mask of a I'm mm. spiritual. Now I got ordained as a priest. I don't I have I'm bald and I'm gonna just do that and I'm rejecting everything else. Uh whether it's a Buddhist priest or a Catholic priest or a Vedanta priest. It's a new mask. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. I'm saying that although I've been a priest my whole life, you know, so mm. I don't think we just we don't just these things don't just fly away you know even once we start practice and realize there has to be something that we can integrate into our lives that is a a, a provides a a a fulcrum for yeah not getting as deeply caught and reactive and judgmental and so on Yes. But it's but it nothing goes away. Ramdas used to talk about you know he used to say it in a funny way. I've uh, 
you know, as a psychologist, I've quite well identified my neurotic tendencies and habitual patterns. And let me tell you, not one of them has disappeared in all of these decades, except one thing that's happened. And this is my own experience. They've become, he called them little schmooze, right? Which is a Yiddish thing. S-H-M. O-O-S, schmooze. Okay. Okay, they're little guys. They don't quite envelop you and grab you and by the throat. You know, they've become something where there's spaciousness around them, around these neurotic tendencies and so on. That's right. And, and as you referred to before, that's what Suzuki Roshi called, uh, just watch the movie. Mm. Uh, uh, and when I said, well, there are, only, there are the good movies in North Beach, and then there are these awful movies that you watch, and he said, I like them all. Just watch the movie. What was he watching? Well, in Japantown, he had come over to the United States to, to minister the, to the Japanese congregation. They paid his salary, and they gave him the place to live. Uh, but they didn't sit in meditation. They had they did ritual, they did weddings, they did mm, funerals. Yeah. Just like actually my my in-laws in India, you know, my daughter, they, they didn't do the meditation. And he found he op he did the meditation by himself till a few of us went started sitting with him. But he every Saturday night he would go to the movies that the Japanese congregation had. It was a shoot 'em up class c samurai movie in the same building that we did our meditation and i would n never go to any of those i went over to north beach where they had the classy movies the the artistic movies <laughs> what of, of the samurai movies i mean i used yeah. to go to them all the time down there myself oh yeah well yeah. i didn't go to them they looked like just bloods and guts to me and it didn't turn didn't I thought it wouldn't support my practice? You know, I was kind of narrow in my perspective. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> uh, I noticed him bleary-eyed on a, on a Sunday morning when he'd have to give a talk, and I said to him once, uh, "Well, you go to those movies every Saturday night, and then you get up and sit in meditation with us." He said, "Yes," and I said, "Do you like any of them?" And he said, "I like them all. I like them all." <laughs> So whatever yeah. movie's passing through, oh, eh, I like it all. <laughs> right. I like them all. <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's the consciousness. That's the, uh, yeah, the enlightenment we're talking about, I guess, oh. is just non-judgmental whatsoever. And he was there. He was serving the people that wanted him to be there. Oh. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, let's talk about uh, idiot compassion. One of my favorite subjects. I uh, and which that term comes from uh, Trumpa Rinpoche Chogyam. I know. And no. did you meet up with him anytime? Uh, well, I went. To, I studied at Naropa in the. Oh, late, you did. In the late seventies, seventy nine and eighty, mm. I think. And he was there. I never had a one to one with him, but I did hear him speak. You know. Yeah. Amazing, right? I mean, yeah. even even with all of the crazy yeah. wisdom stuff, which is, yeah. in, in my mind, beyond my pay grade, I wouldn't have any idea. I did uh, meet meet up with him in in various uh, did you places. Meet him? Did you have a one to one meeting with him? 
Um, not one to one. It was more because uh, I was with Ramdas at the time, oh, and I he see. was. Uh, so there was a couple, a few of us with Ramdas, and we would meet. Sure. Him I wonder him. when that was. That was seventy nine and eighty for me. When was that for you? Well, we came back from India in seventy two, uh, Ramdas and I and some and others, and so at in seventy two three is when we were seeing him at Tale of the Tiger, which is now called Karma something else. Oh, you were Karma Choling. Very early. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And he was extraordinary. So yeah, idiot compassion. Okay. Uh and you uh I guess this guy, uh John oh no, okay. John Wellwood. John Wellwood. That was more about spiritual bypass, but I want to talk about idiot compassion. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, how do you define it? Well, there's this uh, uh, there's this movement within twelve steps, uh, and there are specific groups now for codependency. Uh, and codependency is that. Uh, uh, if you're anxious, I'm anxious, and I need to take care of you so that you won't be anxious to not feel anxious myself. Hmm. And if you're angry, I empathize with your anger, but not to a health in a healthy way. I'm caught by your anger, and I and and I have to get rid of your anger, help you out of that anger, or I don't feel okay. Um, and that's idiot compassion, uh, and that they have now over the all over the Twin Cities. That's where I live. Yeah. There, there are several codependency groups. It's not, it's not alcohol, it's not drugs, it's not sex. Although they have all those, it's not gambling. <laughs> it's co it's just base codependency, and those. As a psychologist, I I've worked with a lot of people who who never developed healthy ego boundaries. And so they come into Zen and they're just wanting to, they just feel everybody's pain and they're caught by it. And mm -hmm. they, they have no freedom themselves. Mm -hmm. So that's how I talk about idiot compassion. Yeah. I guess back, I remember, you know, him talking about Trump, Trump talking about it. Um, and it, it's, it's pretty much what you said, but it was also the completely, uh, really ridiculous way that we think we are going to be helping someone and actually we are doing the exact opposite because our uh, motivations are not pure. They're just not. not. Sure. not sure. And so we're doing things that actually exacerbate whatever that situation right. that person may be. Right. We're compensating for our own fundamental insecurity. We're trying to, and we don't realize it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, as you say here, it's a common response. When we just can't bear situations, we ourselves find uncomfortable. Perfect in its explanation there. And we'd rather project suffering onto others than recognize and deal with our own discomfort. I mean, well said, Tim. Okay. Uh you know, and then you end up drained and exhausted from helping people. Yeah. Then if you are, you're engaging in some form of idiot compassion. Yeah. I used to be a social worker because I was, a, before I was a psychologist, 
And oh, yeah. so many of my friends just got burned out. And they just, after three or four years, they just left. They couldn't do it anymore. Mm. Luckily, I had a meditation practice. Mm. Right. What would you uh, give, you know, so people listening to this say to themselves, yes, I, I, we have all been in this situation. Nobody mm. is clear from this situation because right. we can't see the reality of what is necessary because we are still so very caught in our own um, mini-me land, um, yeah. I call it. Uh, what uh, you know, What do you say to somebody who kind of, re- uh, you know, they hear this and they realize, shit, I've been there too. And what is the um, antidote? What is the antidote to someone who's caught by that and, and, and sees it? Yeah, sees? yeah. Um, uh, well, I don't know exactly what the antidote is, but it's take a pill. This is we're in a, we're in America. You, something's wrong. You take a pill. I mean, yeah, I mean, what I asked the them question's is, a bit dumb. So I yeah. What I asked them is, oh, uh, that person made you angry, and that is an anger. I mean, your um, excuse me, your compassion for that person for their for their anger made you angry. How are you doing now? And if they say I'm still a little angry, then I say, well, do you think that really helps them? Let's just sit in meditation for a few minutes and see if you're ready to let go of that. Because do you really think that helps them? Mm. So I do this usually one to one with people. Mm. Right. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, absolutely. I work uh, a lot one-to-one with people. Oh, you do, huh? Oh, yeah, I'm cool. not a therapist anymore, but I'm kind of a therapist. <laughs> yeah, it's more a ther- spiritual therapist. I know I have friends who were therapists, and and now, you know, they got to a, a stage where they didn't need to or, or no longer were retired from that, uh, but then kept working with people who had some basic... Um, uh, understanding of, gee, there is a way for us to turn this around. And I guess this answers that question, which is called, with a big P, practice. Mm -hmm. Unless we are doing something to, uh, you know, open us up to places where we can transform uh, through understanding and deep listening to ourselves, uh, it becomes very tough, right? Right. And I have five chapters in my book on different ways, different ways to practice, all of which complement one, each other. And you can just Mm. do one or do all five. Mm. Yes. No, that's great. Let's talk about, since we're, you know, we were talking about idiot compassion, uh, and I talk about spiritual bypass a lot with different people on, on the podcast. And, um, yeah, and, and it, yeah, so we were there with uh, John Wellwood. I didn't know that, a Buddhist psychologist I've not heard of. Um, he coined that term. Yeah, right? he passed away now, oh. but he was my teacher at Naropa in something like 79. And uh-huh. he, I took a class in Buddhist psychology from him. He was a student of uh, Trumpa's, and he talked about, I'd never heard of it before, spiritual bypassing. I think he coined the term. Hmm. Um, 
so here a little bit of a, a, a definition we are imprisoned by the constraints of a spiritual super ego mm-hmm. you know we're all gung-ho when we realize wait a minute there is a path and i'm getting on this path you know especially difficult for us in the west in particular because there's such you know the competitive stuff and yeah. and the conditioning on that level is very yeah. very strong yeah. uh, making spiritual teachings into prescriptions about what we should do how we should think how we should speak or how we should feel uh and you say the only shoulds are that are healthier though those that support our authenticity are th- and th- authenticity which is difficult because we uh are unfortunately have a lot of delusion sure. and uh and very difficult to just settle into um you know into that being that suzuki roshi so effortlessly uh displayed to you when he opened the door i just have that thing he opened the door and then boom mm-hmm. that's uh very fortunate um so Uh, there's a there's a quote uh, from another person. You've introduced a few people I've never heard of. Jack Elias, and he wrote Zen and the Art of Spiritual Bypassing. Is that yeah. Yes. Wow, that's a, I mean, I, I love the quote. Um, uh, talk about an antidote. Approach the sacred place with full self-respect, respect for your own sacredness, and demand to be let in. No slicing or dicing or fawning required. No arrogance either. Just genuine commitment to your own basic goodness, which is one of the foremost tenets of Buddhism. Um, and um, it's funny because we have in in the in the tradition that we are in, Neem Karoli Baba, you know, introduced us to Indian devotees in the very in the beginning. Ramdas was actually um, told to go live after he met him that first time to with a, an Indian family, not far away, you know? Oh, really? Yeah. And that person whose name is KK saw, was his family and he became a mentor to us when we went over as well. Uh-huh. And part of the deal was that, uh, then we had no understanding of, of Indian family and thank God we, we got trained up there as well, which was, uh, it's just what he's saying. Uh, just that, uh, you know, you you just, ask, you don't ask politely for anything, putting on this guise of Mr. Nice Guy and I'm a visitor and I'm going to be, if you don't demand from them the cup of tea, oh, is, is there, uh, can I have a cup of tea? I, 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 you know, that kind of thing. You know, they want you, and we we couldn't understand this. They want you to demand it so they feel like you are part of the family. Would yes. you, and they say to us, would you ask your mother for a cup of tea? And I think this translates perfectly to how, w- with the teachings, with the teachers that we... That's right. Ramakrishna has a saying, which may not be in my book, maybe it probably isn't, a hungry person always finds food. So a hungry person is not caught by etiquette. Right. Not caught by shoulds and should nots. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's that's a good teaching. Absolutely. Um, 
Boy, time is flying, Tim. Yeah. We were just yeah you, you edit this or is this? No editing. We don't do editing. Is this we're not going to edit even this. No, it's Are not live, but oh. I don't edit. Who's going to oh. edit? Um, I, uh, th there's something, else. I mean, to me, the, I mean, there's so much stuff here, Tim, we could, uh, we could basically go on for more than an hour, but uh, just in the last few minutes, um, generosity. I, uh, so we've talked about how, you know, uh, my friend Christian has talked about the movie of me and I, I'm actually doing, I'm going to be doing an audio, I am doing an audio book with my friend Duncan Trussell. Uh, people who listen to this podcast know that, and I've said it many times, and it's from the movie of me to the movie of we is mm. the basic concept. We don't even have a final right. title. Yeah. Right. So one one of the things that uh, I included, or we will include, is um, a concept then that I uh, that was really well said by Ramdas mm. around generosity. Mm -hmm. That generosity is a fulcrum to be able to transform this addiction to uh, self interest, basically. Oh, yes. and and you have it here. Um, the Buddha said, if bodhisattvas act generously beyond any concept of generosity, their merit will be incalculable. Um, and putting the needs of others above our own. And when we commit to a spiritual practice, it's tempting to fixate on this idea of supporting others at the expense of ourselves. But this dualistic view of generosity is not only a thought distortion, but also a detriment to your mental, emotional, and physical well-being, and therefore uh, unsustainable. This kind of either-or thinking guarantees you no peace. And here's the beauty here. Authentic generosity is not about trying to be good or to live up to some ideal. Instead, if we're feeling like we're stingy, not wanting to extend ourselves to a particular person or share with them, an actual, an actional understanding of generosity includes opening up to and being generous to this feeling. That is, uh, that's the greatest thing in this book, the way you said that, Tim. I mean, there's so many great things. But that really hit me. Hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Well, sure. Um, so as a psychologist, well, also I'm teaching Buddhism and brain science right now. Oh, but as are? a psychologist, I talk about the amygdala. We all have an amygdala, and that's fight, flight, freeze. Fight, fight, flip, yeah. freeze. And that governs so much of our behavior, even if we're advanced meditators, even if we've had... We've died to our small selves. And uh, uh, so if that, uh, when, when we're scared, when we're stingy, we're usually scared. Yeah. And that's because our amygdala has fired up and it wants to protect us because yeah. all species want to uh, uh, preserve themselves. They want to have offspring. And so but we have a possibility to be generous to our stinginess just by opening up to it and noticing noticing it, recognizing it, accepting it, feeling it in our bodies, and then it then it it's it passes. The amygdala quiets down. The amygdala just stops. There's a lot of research in the mm. in 
the only in the 21st century about decrease in the size of the amygdala among very experienced meditators. It's really, really cool stuff. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> wow. Um, and then healing, you say, begins with embracing our, our flaws. That's and right. That's uh, to even get to the point where you can be natural and authentically generous with anybody. You have to start there. Compassion begins with embracing the flaws of others, but right. healing begin, begins with embracing our own. What is, talk about just uh, briefly, wabi-sabi, because uh, teaches us to embrace rather than resist. What is that practice? Oh, wabi-sabi comes from Japanese uh, art. And uh, uh -huh, right. I don't know, I do I explain it in the book? I can't even remember. I don't I talk about it unless I explain it in the book. <laughs> then it's better for you to read it or me to read no, it. No, no, you do explain it. It's got three primary features, imperfection and irregularity, age and simplicity and naturalness. Good. Okay. Now you did I'm do gonna it. Tell, I'm going to tell a story about wabi-sabi. Okay, great. Uh, I love one stories. of the... Uh, Japanese art is really affected by Zen historically. Mm. And there's something called Rakupari, R-A-K-U, that really embodies that. And Rakupari, you bake in the cracks, you bake in the overflows, you bake mm. in the irregularities, and, and those cups, those teacups are really valued because each is idiosyncratic, each is individual, and yet each is authentic because it's open to its cracks, it's open to its its irregularities. So I wanted to go to, this is probably in the book, I wanted to go to Japan to practice Zen because I thought there was more sitting there and I really meditate, meditate, meditate. And Suzuki know, knew that I was looking at many different options and uh and kind of comparing and contrasting and sort of tripping out on my different options. And uh, we were having breakfast one morning, and he, and he pointed to the wall, which was full of Raku pottery cups. And he said, if I try to choose the best cup, I will never appreciate any of them. So uh, authenticity, authenticity, wabi-sabi, just being who we are and what we are flaws and and irregularities and all <laughs> yeah yeah beautiful as you described it i do remember knowing about it i mean i just couldn't recall how what it really meant and the japanese have done a really good job aesthetically uh no they don't sit in meditation i don't know if they ever did but um but they've done a good job aesthetically and kind of manifesting what I call non-dual feeling. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. We all, I haven't spent time there really, so I, that, that's a little bit of a bucket list to be able to go and, mm -hmm. and spend some time. Yeah, well, I never spent time there either. Oh, you didn't? No, only India and Bhutan. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you here and everybody uh this book is chocked full of uh antidotes to the movie of me basically <laughs> here it is along with my uh, notes 
and uh, we're going to give you a link, everybody. It'll be in the show notes so that you can connect. Uh, Tim has a couple of other books as well, and you can connect up with them. Uh, Suzuki Roshi, uh, Zen Mind, No Mind. Is that the name of that book? His book, his most famous book is Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Beginner's Mind. Yes. Yeah, uh, which was uh, de rigueur reading back when in no, the time right. when things were opening up for for both of us at that time. Yes. Uh, so yeah, that'll all be in the show notes, and uh, just happy to to have you here. And Thank you so much, Roger. I'm so happy to have that you included me and. And shared some of your wisdom too, because <laughs> wisdom is not owned by anyone; it's just no. out there. <laughs> yeah, no, In absolutely, here. absolutely. That's the wonderful thing about uh, our interconnectivity and the reality of it. Wow. So, um, well, thank you again, Tim. And this is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to beherenownetwork.com and. Take advantage of the plethora of wonderful teachers. One of them, uh, Tim, uh, of course, Alan Watts is on our network, you know. Is he? The OG wow. guy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and uh, Ram Dass, of course, and so I, Jack Cornfield, many. Alan Watts came to Stanford, then Ram Dass came to Stanford. I was wow. kind of in the right place at the right time. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah. Oh, wow. Alan amazing amazing being absolutely um all right we okay, shall see you so next time thank you tim you're very welcome now you think it was okay without the mic or can you not really tell yet oh don't worry it's all gonna be good no worry okay. all right. hang in there for a second all right. though